Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. You know what time it is? Yeah, it's time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious, beard of the absurd. Hold on to your lug nuts, kids. Time for an overall. Let's do it. Delighted to have you back joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth, the uh, Podbean platform where I... uh, post all this stuff and produce all this stuff and upload all this stuff has analytics up the wazoo and the kazoo take your pick and uh, it's interesting to me after a episode airs now airing is like all relative because in my mind and in my world from radio today's the air date right so it's march 2nd and this is the air date of the show but somebody may not listen to this for three years down the road So the analytics kind of bounce around here and there, but it's interesting to see where they're listened to. And when you have, you know, people checking in from Australia, uh, you know, down under, which it's already like tomorrow, I guess, there, uh, or South Africa or South America or Ireland or Iceland or, you know, one of a dozen other places. Now, 90% of the listeners of this show, they're here in the United States. And I find it all so fascinating, and I'm kind of glad that I do. You know, I'm a kid that grew up with 9,000 copies of the Encyclopedia Britannica, right, lined up. So many of us had that. And that was like the extent of our reach, incoming and outgoing. You want to know something, you go over to the Encyclopedia, open up, which was already a year old, if not, you know, you had to buy them every year. And you can't give those things away now. I don't think that they even, like recycling centers don't even take the Encyclopedia Britannica. It was... It was the standard of information back in the day. So now that that's all gone, uh, and there's nothing that's not at our fingertips, literally the world is at our fingertips. Seriously, every time I come in here, I think two things. Number one is, I'm amazed that anybody can hear me out there in the abyss. But they are, and they're listening, so thank you. And number two, thanks for the subscribers that make this all work. I've been doing this over five years. This is just an extension of everything else I've done for almost 30 years. So... Part of me thinks I should just shut up and go away into the corner and, you know, read the newspaper, which is kind of depressing. And the other part of me is still so excited on Saturday mornings to come in here and knock these out. It's, it's uh, really interesting to me that my thirst has not been quenched when it comes to, you know, common sense for uncommon times. It, it's, it's apparently the thing that I get to do while I'm here, and I, and I really enjoy it. So I thank you for listening. I thank the subscribers who have stayed with me. It comes and goes. People come for a while. They come back, back and forth. It's 20 bucks a month. The same amount of money I spent on a pizza last night, eight and nine minutes, you get a whole month's worth of shows. So it's fantastic. Delivered right to your email inbox. So lots going on. One of those mornings where I'm like, okay, I need the right cup of coffee to pull this off. And I have in my mind, I don't have anything written down here, always working without a net, which is, you know, kind of a little dangerous at times, but so what? It's my show. But there's a few moving parts here today, and I will hopefully get them in the right order. And the first thing was last Wednesday, I did a Wednesday with Weigel episode. I hope you'll, if you're a subscriber, it was right in your inbox, so no problem there. Uh, If you didn't get it in your inbox, it means you're not a subscriber, and you should be, don't you think? Thanks very much. Jen Weigel is one of the most uh, hardworking, talented uh, presence in our business, in my opinion. 
there's not much that she, I mean, I can't find that she doesn't do well when it comes to the media. She's a, a, an incredible radio personality. We've done shows together for many years. Uh, we did a whole year's worth of shows in Washington, D.C. together, John and Jen. It's something, a concept that we'd like to duplicate, like in a major market. Now, listen, I mean, in, in radio, as long as my voice holds up, I could be 110 and still do this. So I'm not really concerned about that part of it. But there's a lot of things that move around behind the scenes to make those things happen. And one of them is you got to have some sort of a big agent to do it. And, you know, I'm not a fan and neither is she, which is kind of a detriment to our, our idea. So we'll see if that, you know, the universe handles the details or not. It may, it may not. So whenever I get a chance to speak with her, you know, I'm going to do it. So she has this new show coming up, a stand-up show called I'm Spiritual Demet. It's based off the book of the same title that she wrote years ago. And it's a one-woman show. So if you're in Chicago and you're listening to the sound of my voice on March 7th and 8th, Jennifer is going to be at the Oil Lamp Theater in Glenview, just outside of the city. And uh, she's doing performances two nights in a row. I went to see her, God, it's, it's 10, 12, 14 years ago, probably not at this point, when she first started doing this one-woman show type stuff. And I was knocked out. You know, you know somebody for a long time and then you see them do something you had no idea that they could do. Now, as an author, a speaker for sure, you know, on, on, on kind of spiritual issues and things like that. Uh, radio, as I mentioned, she's on television. She's an Emmy Award winning television journalist. She's been on Chicago PD, Chicago FD, all the other shows. I mean, she just really does it all. Exhausting, but she does it all. So when I saw her do this performance, I was knocked out. She's not only hilarious, but the points she makes are very, very... Very good. So if you get the opportunity, go see what Jen's up to on March 7th or 8th at the Oil Lamp Theater in Glenview. You can go to oillamptheater.org, O-R-G, and uh, get tickets there. So that's number one. Number two, you know, got to call it what it is. The last time I had a lot of hair was probably college. You know, it's kind of been, you know, taking its leave of absence ever since then. So it doesn't bother me. It's been for so long, I haven't had a lot of hair. I'm follically challenged. I think we should start a little uh, support group for those of us who are follically challenged. Anyway, one of my big beefs over the years is like, look, you know, I don't know, part of me is still stuck in 1975, but so what? So a haircut shouldn't cost 35 bucks or $30 to get a haircut. I just don't see it. Now, it gives me a whole new level of respect for women who, you know, spend tons of money to get their haircut. I don't understand all that. I mean, I get you go to school and there's obviously, but for a guy like me, you just get out the clippers, zip, 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 done, you're done. 30 bucks. There was no massage. I didn't get a hot towel. So these are the kind of things that have been going on. And it, it, it has kind of pushed me into a corner going, where's the place I can get a decent haircut, right? For something that's affordable. Not even affordable. I can afford 30 bucks. That's not the point. If I want to spend $30, I'll buy two pizzas, right? So something worth the money. So for years, I went to a guy in the city who's great. Started out with $12 a haircut. I'm like, this is perfect. I had to wait in line, but so what? They got a TV on with no sound. You got magazines that are 12 years old. You got a bathroom. What else do you want? So as men, we're used to sitting and willing to sit in line and wait for a good haircut from a guy who knows what he's doing. But it's got to be affordably priced, at least in my opinion. So I was going there for years. He did a bang-up job. Now, when you don't have a lot of hair and a guy can cut your hair and makes it look like you have hair, that's a freaking genius in my opinion. And that's what this guy did. So 
it went from twelve dollars and then it went to fifteen. It didn't matter. I was always giving them a five dollar tip anyway. So it went from fifteen to eighteen. Then it went to twenty. I'm like, hold, hold on a second here. And this is all due to the inflationary ripple, right? So I think it's, I, and I'm you know just guessing here, but so what? Still my show. I can guess all I want. When you're in business and you see people, you know, the inflation rate going up and people charging more money from things, think, hey, I'm going to get in on that. Now, the barber, with all due respect, didn't have a bunch of new equipment. He didn't paint the place. We didn't all get coffee for nothing. There was no big reason to make a, a haircut go from 12 to 15 to 18 to 20 bucks, like in months. It was hair gouging, in my opinion. So the last time I was in there, was probably a year ago. And I said to the guy, you know, he doesn't talk a lot, which is fine. We're not in there to be Dr. Phil, right? So he, he's kind of doing his thing. We've had a couple conversations over the years, but most of the time we don't talk. So I said to him, how many haircuts do you think you've given since you started this? I mean, how many, how many men do you think you've cut hair for? He must have been having a bad day. And he goes, well, that's a ridiculous question. I said, well, okay. I was just making conversation, right, while I'm getting my haircut. He says, how many times have you eaten dinner in a lifetime? I'm like, I don't, it's incalculable. He goes, there's your answer. And you should know the answer before you even ask the question. I'm not going to sit in the barber's chair for 20 bucks, giving him my money to hear shit like that. He could have made it up or said, I don't know, or he could have ignored me to be better. So that was like a break in our relationship. I thought, I'm, you know, great haircut, but it's also in the city, and I'm not driving to the city to sit in line for two hours to get a $20 haircut. If you got half the hair you used to have, it should be half the price, in my humble opinion. So I was getting pretty shaggy, and my highly significant other goes, uh, time for a haircut because you're starting to look like shaggy from Scooby-Doo. And okay, great. And, you know, I don't do well with shaggy hair. At one point, I probably did, but it's just, you know, high and tight, I'm done. So... I have it in my head about this whole half the hair, half price thing. And I happened to go out and get a pizza on a Friday night. Shocking, I know. At our local place here called Rockies. By the way, shout out to Rockies. Veteran owned. Fantastic. Best pizza I've had since I was a kid growing up in the city from Odo's in La Villa. It's that good. Anyway, I go in to get a pizza about two weeks ago. And I come walking out. There's this flag stuck in the ground. They have these big you know, flags now that you advertising business and lo and behold right next to rocky's pizza is leo's barber shop just opened i thought wait what now westchester sits on the boundary of uh oakbrook and oakbrook is right near right by hinsdale and western springs and it's a fairly affluent area so i'm not expecting anything less than 30 dollars for a haircut right and i stick my head Nice young man there. I said, hey. I said, what time? They literally had just opened the day before. He goes, I'm open here to here. Okay, fine. So I was hoping to get back the next day. I was so excited. There was a barber. I could literally walk there. And I didn't get back for about a week. I came in and nobody else there. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning. And I said to the guy, I said, yeah, I stuck my head in about a week. ago. He goes, yeah, I was here for you the next day waiting. Ha ha. You know, we chuckling up a little bit. And this guy, young man, very affable likable, talkative. This is my new place. I used to be over here. I did that for 12 years. The rent went up. I'm over here. I'm having clients come in. To, he said more to me in the first nine minutes than the other barber said to me in nine years. 
And again, I'm not in there to have a filibuster, but it was nice to have a conversation. So he says to me, how you like it? I said, well, there ain't that much there to work with, brother. Do what you can. He had a great haircut. Really not. I mean, he just took took his time, the whole thing, maybe you know, 25 minutes. And I'm assuming because nobody else is in there, he can take all the time he wants. So we chatted back and forth about him and back and forth, you know, all the kind of things you want to do. And I'm like, oh, this is a very nice experience being in this barber shop. And we finish up, and I literally had just went to the Jewels. You know, here in Chicago, we have a supermarket chain called Jewel, but we call it Jewels. Because there's a lot of them, in my opinion. And there was a whole thing in the paper a while back about why we add S's on things in Chicago. Because we can. It's our city. We can do what we want. Anyway, I went to Jules and I got money out. Like 60 bucks. I'm thinking, I'm paying this guy $30 probably for a haircut. I'll give him a tip. It's his you know, opening day and all kind of stuff. So we get finished up. He snaps the towel off me, cleans up my neck, does the whole thing. Asked if I want an aftershave. I said, no. And uh, I said, what I owe you? He said, first one's on me. Wait, what? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're a new customer. I've not, we've not seen each other before. Uh, first one's on me. Thanks for being here. Thanks for supporting me. You know, I did a, like a cartoon. Blah, 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 blah. What? Never in all the years of getting a haircut. So I'm 65. I get my haircut since, what, 60 years probably? 60 years. No one ever has said from the barber chair, this is on me. Here you go. Have a nice day. Now, brilliant business move, right? You, I, I'll be going back, of course, unless it's like $100 for a haircut. But I was so, I was, you know, very few things come along in life at this point. I'm like, I've never seen this before. You've been around long enough. Like, I've seen this shit like 20 times. Never once has anybody said, I got it. Have a good day. I mean, it was like I was flo- I felt looked better than I even thought I did. I came walking out feeling pretty good, boy. So, shout out to Leo's Barbershop here in Westchester, Illinois. Not getting paid for this. This is not a paid endorsement. I'll be getting another haircut in a couple, three weeks. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that was like, wow, that just made my day. The little things like that. Little thing like that. Just I called everybody, I got a free haircut today, but What? How, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, it was free. So no strings attached. If I never walk in the door again, which I will, free haircut. So shout out to Leo. I don't know if he's up and running as far as Facebook page and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, and I'm wishing him the best. That hopefully a bunch of really hairy guys walk in there and need haircuts. I'll be one of them. So there's that. Which is a lot more important than my quills on my head. You know, I don't have hair anymore. I basically, like a hedgehog or a... Uh, porcupine is just quills used to have hair worried about hair products conditioner screw that i have quills what's the point there's no point in that you don't put hair oil or conditioner on quills you just put a little bronzers on your head i prefer the tea tree you know and uh you're off good to go all right enough of that this past week's been really busy with a lot of audio projects and a lot of moving parts and so uh one of my habits is to get out of my studio physically, you know, a couple times during the day. In the morning, I'll go to the gym or early afternoon, I'll go to the gym. If I think I've been sitting here too long, I kind of gauge my day about going to the gym, doing some physical activity. But when I have lunch, the propensity in the past has been, like I've been everywhere in my career, is to eat where I work. And that's not a great idea all the time. And 
two things happened. One is my trusty Dusty Dell, which is sitting behind me here in the garage, parked for a while. You know, I can't imagine how much food is underneath that keyboard. It's got to be like a deli in there, right? And now that I have this new sleek model of the Dell, um, the keyboard's set up different. It's not as easy to get food particles shoved down in there, so that's good. But still, I don't need to be sitting here eating. I'm not under that much of a deadline. So I bug out to the living room, or what we call here in Chicago, the front room, and uh, you know, go to Netflix because there's no commercials, and I can watch something, a you know, some sort of uh, documentary or whatever for 45 minutes. Would see, and it's all it works out. So it's like I'm doing that. So I come across this thing the other day, like the world's most dangerous prisons. Seven, six, seven episodes are all about 45 minutes, and I'm like, well, I'm going to watch this. And so I'm watching this guy who was wrongly convicted of something back in the day and spent 12 years behind bars, who's now become a producer and a host, and he's going behind prisons to look at rehab. Now, he was wrongly confused. He was let out, obviously. Um, and uh, he's going to these different prisons. I've gotten to two of them out of the eight. And one was in the Czech Republic, and it was talking about how much of a drug problem there is in these places, not just in the prison themselves, but in the in the countries that lead to these men being incarcerated. And he's talking to these guys. They're all young. They're all tattooed up and young and smoking cigarettes. And, you know, it's not the world's most dangerous prison because nobody's in shackles and nobody's down, in, you know, like in lockdown. And I didn't see any of that. They're just in there because they have drug problems. And, you know, they've, they've obviously have harmed people. And he's going through the cell block talking to different inmates and it's uh you know it's got um, closed captions so you can see what they're saying because they're not speaking english all the time and one by one they start talking about how they got there and what they did and all that kind of thing and when they're going to get out and the basics of the prison is to rehab these guys and get them into some society in a way that is you know that works for them that does not have them coming back there and the, the, uh, the return rate, according to him, is about 70%. 30% of them are able to, at least for five years, stay out of pro- trouble. 70% within five years are back in, despite the, quote, best efforts of the, you know, the administration to, uh, to do something about it. So I'm watching him talk to these young guys and back and forth and kind of made a note of that. And then the next day for lunch, I went right back and watched the next one. And he was, they were somewhere else now. Uh, in another Eastern country in Europe. And it was a similar thing. You know, it's a similar type of setup and they all got drug problems. And, and, and it's like, okay, so there's these common denominators. And the, the host, to his credit, is kind of grilling the administration saying, well, what is, you know, you got these incoming here. You know, it's almost like a catch-22. There's so many drugs out there. And in the prison, how do you expect to even intervene to a point where you can make a difference? And he says, well, it's up to the individuals, the admin would say, the the prison warden would say, the counselor would say, it's up to the individuals to have to make that decision. We could give them all the tools in the world, but until they make that decision, it doesn't matter. And there it was. Somebody can give you all the answers to the test. If you don't take the test and use the answers you were given, you will fail. And it started me thinking about, I bet, six or eight prisons that I've spoken over the years. 
But back in the day, I did this quite often, six times, maybe eight. Now, three of those were in the same prison in Upper Michigan, different groups of men, but the same prison. I went there three different times. And then there was a couple more downstate. And then there was one in Milwaukee, which was pretty unforgettable, which I'll get to in a second. So I've been able to walk in a prison and say, what the F are you doing here? And have them respond. So the first time I went in, I'll never forget it. I, uh, I go in there and I have some props that I t- use to uh, illustrate some of the points I want to make about why people do what they do, even if it's bad for them. And these guys all come walking in, all hard asses, right? And what they're used to, what they're thinking is going to happen is it's going to be a Bible thumping session. I'm going to throw the Jesus card at them. And if you just trust in Jesus, everything will be fine. And no offense to anybody listening, but it doesn't quite work that way in prison, okay? If it works for you, great. But for the majority of men there, they've been hearing that their whole lives. It has not changed anything. So they all come walking into this big like auditorium they have there. And I was asked the guards and the admin beforehand, I really don't want to be separate from them. Meaning I don't want to be up on a stage somewhere and then like out there. If I'm going to do this, I need to be in with them. And look, uh, if there were 20 of them jump me, I probably couldn't defend myself. But I've been around in enough tough situations and things that I'm not worried about that. You know, I kind of look like them, some of them. So they agreed, but with, with modifications. So there was a guy on each side of me, you know, a couple of security guys and prison guards and whatnot. And we walked in, there was this big stage and I walked off the stage. And as soon as I walked down among them, something changed. I wasn't above them. I wasn't telling them what to do from up on high. I was with them sharing things that I had learned and you could just see that something happened. There's a connection there. And I went through this whole thing that I used to do about, you know, the ripple effect and how Everything we believe, everything we believe only comes from a few sources. The first is, of course, our family. You know, we come to this life, blank slate, and everything gets downloaded. And the people closest to you are are where these beliefs come from. And if you don't challenge those beliefs, they stick for better or for worse. So it's not just your parents and the people, you know, your immediate family, but it goes back generations. And so I got six of these giant guys, they look like they play tackle in the NFL to line up be my guinea pigs and the guy in front of me was like the man living today and then of course then there was his dad behind him his grandfather behind him his great-grandfather behind him and so on all the way six generations back and I asked these guys what was the greatest challenge that you've had to overcome when it comes to uh, living this kind of life what was the main problem main driver and there were two either alcohol or drugs period end of story those are the kindling sticks that burn in so many uh, criminal activity uh, places for these guys. And so I said, well, where did, did that come from? And the guy said, well, my dad was that way, or my mom. But for these purposes, it was my dad. And a majority of the time was my dad, if he was around at all. And then I went back six generations, where he'd get it, where he'd get it. Where he'd... So you go all the way back six generations, you can see where the stuff runs downhill. So I had to put their right arm on each other's shoulders in front of it until it gets to the guy standing right in front of me. I said, so that's, you know, one of the main drivers of why you're in this place. That unchallenged belief about alcohol or drugs that this was part of your life and because it's been part of their lives. 
But there had to be one redeeming thing. Tell me something about your dad that was great. And they all came up with different things, but even though a lot of the fathers were not there, they were absent dads, that they had some redeeming quality. They helped other people, for example. I swore they learned that. And same thing, we go back six generations, and I have put their left hand on everybody's shoulder until it gets the guy in front of me. So now you have this row of six men with their hands on each other's shoulders and the guy in front of them until it gets the guy standing in front of me. And then I said, well, how many of you guys can still turn around and talk to your father if he's here in the physical? Most of the hands went up. How about your grandfather? Half the hands went up. How about your great-great-grandfather? No hands. So you have no connection, no physical connection. They're all gone. And you're still living the beliefs that were handed down from them. How does that make you feel? And you start to see light bulbs go off over people's heads that have never gone on before. Of course, the big question was the guy in the end, the guy that's here today. Who has the most power to change this? Certainly not the father in front of him. Certainly not the grandfather. Certainly not the bones are all gone. It would be the guy living today. So armed with this information that a majority of the way you think was rolled downhill from all the men before you and you have options. You have, on one hand, you're probably a good guy over here, over here, you're an ass. You hurt somebody. You did something wrong. You may have killed him. So what's your choice? And it's you see people struggling with themselves. And I will never forget this. And it's very quiet. And this guy stands up at the back of the room who's obviously somebody. 6'6", 6'7", 6'8", huge black guy stands up. And when he stood up, they all went, ooh. And he says, are you trying to tell me that I had a choice of whether or not I could even be in here? And the guards next to me are like, oh, here we go. And I said, yes you did. And it was like the water broke the dam. He just sat down like he had just heard something for the very first time because he did in his life. Like me getting a haircut for nothing. First time. So over the years, the prisons I've gone to, it's about the communication of the belief systems that we have and how those belief systems are the rudder that drives our lives. Period. End of story. That's it. There's a great, great guy, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who wrote a book called The Biology of Belief. You really should get it. And it talks about this very thing and how our beliefs become part of our biological makeup. It literally, physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally becomes so girded in us that we are unconsciously at times pushed by our beliefs without even knowing it. For better or for worse. Now, if you have a belief system that's in the opposite direction of the guys in prison, it works for you. But the rudder of your beliefs will always steer you to what you're most comfortable with, whether you like it or not. And one of the great challenges in life is to break that connection to things that don't work for you anymore. So over the years, I probably spoke to, you know, uncalculable numbers of people from corporate trainings to high schools, uh, to Ted talks, you name it, I've done it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of presentations and platform presentations as we call them. But those prison conversations were probably the most important to me because they were with a population that didn't have access, or at least readily access, 
to the things that I had growing up or the people have on the outside. If they had, they would have made different decisions. Rarely do you see somebody that has, you know, had a belief system that the world's a safe place. I don't have to fight anybody, even though I have. And that even though my mother, for example, was an alcoholic and my dad enabled her, I don't have to continue that. That's not the belief I have, nor does my sister. The chain was broke there. But you can see where the chain and the links are added constantly. And it's a big cycle. So I can remember getting a few letters over the years from guys after I spoke there. I'm like, oh, what prison was this? And one was just a couple, three years ago. I got a letter from a guy who actually got out and, uh, you know, was going to go on to do speaking and take what he had done to other people and, and reform himself by talking to young men to not, I mean, what else are you going to say except, wow. So if I talk to 500 guys at that prison that day and one does something with it, that's worth my time because somewhere someone made a change. And what else do you want in life besides that to a greater or lesser degree? So I'm watching that prison show and I'm thinking, I know what this guy's going for. And you can see how unless you really want to change and you have reinforced behavior constantly, you're screwed. And all that I've learned about that stuff, the belief system stuff and taking personal responsibility, all those things that have been paramount, discipline and, and all that, that has been parent my, my life that, that has, quote, made me successful at what I do, came from various sources, but it really came, even though my parents had this alcohol thing, underneath that, there was a, they had a deep belief in me, even though they may not have had it in themselves. And the deep belief they had in me transferred into other men and women in my life that f- saw the same thing in me, and I'm like, wow. You know? So I think it's been a big part of my life to pay that back and pay it forward at the same time the best I can. I can tell you, and I've said this many times, the the main driver for all the work that I do, except for some of the sports stuff, which is just for fun, but all the, like a conversation like this was came out of the frustration that I had that I could not help my mom break the chain of alcoholism. And I don't know much about her dad and my grandmother was, her mom was gone by the time I was two. And I don't know much past that. I can't go look at that long line and go, oh yeah, look at all this. All I had was my mom and what she was dealing with. And there was whatever was in her life that was so painful that alcohol became the antidote, at least temporarily. uh, We never got to that point. And so I was so adamant that, you know, the wound that I have from that my mom's early death and going through all the shit we went through with that um, would not be wasted. That I would try to get some information out to say this does not have to be your fate. There are other ways to do things. And this prison I mentioned before in Milwaukee, I was given a talk. My second book had come out in 2010. This would have been 2010, I guess, 2011. And I was giving a talk at a bookstore and there was a guy standing in the back and uh he came up afterwards and he said, I'm so-and-so from this, this you know, prison, for lack of a better term, facility in Milwaukee. And it's all for men and women who have committed vehicular homicide. And would you come speak there? I think they could benefit from it. He goes, but we don't have a lot of my, whatever, it's fine. Buy, buy everybody a book and we'll call it even. So they did that. 
And uh, I got there, but before I went there, I said, I need to know who I'm talking to. And I've never actually done this before. And for some reason, I felt like I needed to. And what, what I wanted to do was hear their stories before I went. I don't really need to know their name as much, but I want to see what the lay of the land was. And so I think this particular group I talked to was 50 individuals. Their job was to write their life story. Here's, here's the what, when, where, how, and why. And of course, 99% of them had a problem with alcohol. Go figure. Right in my wheelhouse. And to each of them, as I said, you can just swap the names around. Their stories are the same, basically. There had obviously been an introduction or an intervention saying, there's another way to do this. You're choosing this way. And then pretty soon, because the alcohol or the drugs becomes your best friend, you think, which then flips to be your worst enemy because it just adds compound interest of the worst kind, you have not been able to break that chain. So I went to give this talk and I walked in and I said to the guy, you know, I need to put on like the prison garb they're wearing, just these orange jumpsuits. He's like, why? I said, I just need to do that. So got checked in, put on the orange jumpsuit, walked in. I sit down there looking like, well, who's the guy that's doing the talk? I said, it's me. And I'm wearing the same thing they're wearing. And the reason I did that, and this is honest to God true, uh, with the exception of one or two nights here or there, when I shouldn't have been driving because I drank, I could be one of them. Now, I don't know how many of them did this with intent, probably not most of them, but that they went out, had too much to drink, and killed someone, and they're in prison. Some of them done it multiple times. That's not who I'm talking about but the ones that this, that happened. And I said, with the exception of just a few nights and a twist of fate here or there, I could be here with you. How do you think they received what I had to say then? I wasn't up on high. I wasn't throwing the Bible at them. I wasn't coming out of left field with stuff. It's the truth. So the first guy, I, I, I kind of look for a, uh, a volunteer and he comes and sits next to me and I said, here's really only one question that I have for you. Um, how long before you think your son or daughter is in the cell next to you for the same thing? And he looked at me like he wanted to hit me. What are you talking about? I said, well, if you don't change, who do you think they, you know, what's the chances of them becoming you? What do you think they are? He goes, about 90%. And there it is, the belief once again. So it really isn't for me. I am not a licensed counselor or therapist but I'm dialed in on some things and I think it works for me. And I, I, I've always said, I never thought that the alcohol or the drugs were the problem. They are the symptom. The problem is much deeper. And until you dig down deep and pull the friggin' weeds out, they just keep growing back. So as I'm sitting watching this prison show this week, I'm remembering the times that I went in and did this. And to me, that was like fulfilling my purpose. You know, again, I, I couldn't save my mom. And I can't save anybody else, but I can damn well sure throw out some life preservers and see if somebody grabs on it and then see where if they take it to another level. And hopefully they do. It was a very powerful thing for me to see this week. I got six more episodes to go. And I'm telling you, you know, I spent a couple nights in jail, kid stuff, nothing harmful to anybody else except myself. But going time in prison is a different deal. 
and spending time with these guys in prison was a different deal. And, you know, when you see the light bulbs go off, as I said, you start to realize misinformation and lack of information causes chaos. And it's like going to the gym. You know, there are days I just don't want to go, but you got to go. There's a discipline and repetition for things that make it work for you. And so at this point in my life, I don't have anything to prove at the gym. It's just about vehicle maintenance here on my part with my follicles leaving me. And it's the same thing with all the beliefs that we have. You have to find beliefs that work for you and reinforce them over and over again, no matter what's going on outside of you. It's an inside job. So it was a very good reminder for me this past week. I haven't been to a prison in years. I don't know that I'll ever go back and speak in any of them. But when I got the letter from that guy a couple, three years ago that he was making a change, not whether he did or not, I'll never know. But he had enough in him at that point to write me the letter and say, I heard you. And here's what I'm going to do about it. And I want to do what you do. I want to help guys not get where I was at. That to me, while not in the headlines, is a friggin' lifeline that matters more. That's for sure. Last thing I want to leave you with and send you out the door is a bit of music. Um, and I'm really working to put music in the shows from friends of mine and people I know that won't sue me for, you know, licensing and all that stuff. And um, I have a great friend over the years named Lisa Bradshaw. I met, first met her ah, 1998, 99, when I was just cutting my teeth on the radio. And she had a book out at that time about her family's journey through cancer. And her journey through cancer, I should say, with her family's, you know, how that affected her family. And for whatever reason, the universe put us together at that point. We've been friends ever since. Her father passed away about a month ago, I guess, maybe six weeks ago. And it was devastating to her, as, as it is when you lose a parent. This guy was larger than life. And I know what it's like to lose my parents. Uh, it's a hole that never really closes. But, uh, you know, it really, it really caught them off guard and was unexpected to some degree. Uh, it's difficult. And so she reached out to me at a couple of conversations. She was very tearful, and, and as she should be. And I checked in on her last week. She was back in Texas for a few days and uh, hanging with her friends and her family, which is much needed. And um, we, we had a conversation about, you know, the process of coming out of all that stuff. And a couple days later, I got a, a box in the mail and had two jars of salsa. And the salsa, which I'm not going to give you the name of it because they've just gone out of business. They're not making it anymore, but it was a family business. And it was just a, such a kind gesture. I, I probably had this stuff years ago. I happened to mention it to her, but she thought enough of me to send the salsa. So at some point over this weekend, I'll be shoving salsa and chips in my face, courtesy of Alicia Bradshaw. One of the reasons I am so enamored with her life and work in the world is from something called the uh, Don't Wake Project that she created years ago. And it came out of the fact that her husband, Wesley, uh, needed a double lung transplant and uh, he eventually passed away. And she learned at that point what many of us never learn, which is you can't wait. No one's got, you, no guarantee you're going to be here tomorrow or even tonight or in an hour. So she created the Don't Wait Project and she spent, I don't know, the last three, four years running around the country doing these videos sponsored at one point by Toyota to remind people that life is short and that... Tomorrow's promise to none of us. 
maybe three years ago, she calls me up and she says, hey, I got this song I wrote. I want you to, to hear it a little bit. I'm like, "You wait, what? So she's written a few books. I've helped her on her TED Talk stuff. She's got this Don't Wait project. She, I mean, the woman's got the talent. She, whatever she puts her hands to seems to work in her direction in a good way. And she started telling me a story that when her grandfather died in 1992, it was really the first loss in her life that was like, this is way too soon. Uh, so after he died, she couldn't literally think of him without crying until a few months later when she thought of him and gratitude replaced the sadness, the eventuality of the grieving process. And she wrote a line on a napkin. And the line said, the sad becomes a smile. And I find that all the while, I've been learning to let you go. So apparently, that was in 1992, that napkin stayed in her glove box for a very long time. She pulled it out 28 years later. And uh, that one line written on a fast food napkin that she kept all those years made it into a country song that she had contemplated decades ago. The song is called This Beautiful Life. It is co-written. David Santos came along to help clean it all up and make it all work. And um, this is a guy in Nashville during the pandemic, and a lot of these uh, artists were not working like they normally work, so it, it worked in her favor to have these incredible musicians work on this, uh, this song and um, believing in just one line of a song that would become some, something so beautiful. She says, It's my best effort at telling my family's story, letting Wesley know I'm happy and at peace. That was her husband who passed and somehow conveying in three minutes and 38 seconds the joy of raising our son and reminding everyone who hears it that we can all build a beautiful life no matter the obstacle. So it's a very powerful version of the song uh, sung by the incredible Allie Cutter. And um, I wanted to leave you with this today as a reminder. Tomorrow is promised to none of us. And that beliefs matter. And it's not too late to change course, no matter what's going on, that's for sure. Until next time, be well. Safe travels. Keep the faith. He has your smile, your brilliant mind, your stubbornness, and yes, you sky. A lot like you, but more like me. I knew you'd matter from the start. Saved you a place deep in my heart Some things are just meant to be The deepest wounds They never heal But we move on Cause that's the deal Come what may Your son, your wife I know you know we carved it out this beautiful life We lost the fight, God knows we tried You said be strong, you'll be alright Just raise our son, you'll find your way The years go by, I'll tell you this Grief still shows up in what you've missed But I've kept my promise every
This beautiful life. 